Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Your attention for a few minutes, I have a few announcements to make. Um, the first is a program at the uh, Public Library next Tuesday night, June the 2nd, in which uh, Dr. James Linville is going to speak on to pray or not to pray. What are the ramifications of the recent uh, Supreme Court ruling on prayers at municipal council meetings? He's here today. He's just going to put his hand up, and he'll be at the Public Library next week. For our program next Thursday, <coughs> the uh, topic is... Um, Bridging the Generation Gap, Empowering Youth to Empower Community. Uh, Byron Dent and Louis Busca are going to be the guest speakers, and that will be here at noon. The subject, again, is Bridging the Generation Gap, Empowering Youth to Empower Community. We hope you'll think about being here for that. <clears throat> now, um, uh, we come to our question period, and we'll ask uh, Dr. Bibby to come back here in just a second. Uh, you can go over here to the microphone that's over by the fire extinguisher near the door, and uh, you can ask your questions there. I would um, please ask. I would ask you please to just confine yourself to a question. Of course, there'll be a little bit of a preamble, but we really don't want another address from you. We want you to ask your question and just one, please, so that other people may have their turn to come up to the microphone and ask their questions. Okay, uh, Dr. Bibby, if you'd like to come back, please, and um, members of the group here today can ask you some questions. Reg. Hi, Reg. Hi. I'm Bev Mendel Atherstone. We've known each other since you started at the university. <laughs> you came and presented to our faculty event. <clears throat> um, thank you very much for your talk. It's always very interesting to find out what you've been looking at and researching. I'm just wondering about the big group that you call non-religious. It seems to me that there's, that outside of the organized religions, so-called organized religions, we have all kinds of other religions. Um, whereas, as humans, we're spiritual seeking Creature, because, of course, we're the only creature that we know of, or we say we are, <laughs> that has self-consciousness, self-awareness. So we're always wondering what made us. So, um, but it seems to me that there are other other religions that are secular religions. In in other words, things like um, amalgamating a great deal of wealth to protect us from the unknown, um, or ascribing to certain aphorisms. Uh, such as what goes around comes around, or you'll never be given more than you can deal with. So there are other ways that people deal with their reality. And so my question for you is, have you thought at all of looking um, more closely at what people are actually subscribing to within a religious, an organized relig religious paradigm, uh, and I'll just give you an example. That would be like within the, within the, um, um, what are they called? The, the the group that you were talking about the when you were the Baptist. What is it, Henry? No, the uh, Pentecostal Protestants. 
um, that, especially in the U.S., they seem to be ascribing to amassing great wealth and that that will be the stepping stone to, to um, a good life and a life hereafter. So have you looked at these particular aspects that draw people into organized religions or, as we're talking about, the non-organized religions? Thanks. Um, I, I find your question you know, fairly general. Let, let me tell you, try to take a stab at a couple of things. Uh, we, we've, going back to the, the earliest surveys that we've done in Canada and the earliest analyses, we've, we've tried to make sense of meaning systems that people have, uh, whether they're into conventional religion or into other kinds of expressions. Uh, one of the things that we did not look at enough in the Beyond the Gods and uh, Back uh, book uh, is the uh, the extent to which people, for example, who are not rejecting religion and uh, or, or I should say embracing religion, and uh, they're not embracing it, they're not rejecting it. But this ambivalent middle, we really didn't uh, know very much about where they are. Now, in our new survey, we've tried to get a bit of a handle on that. Uh, the extent to which people, if they're not into religion, how do they cope with questions like life, relating to life and, and death? Uh, and for people, for that matter, on the uh, no religion side, uh, people who now in our survey uh, we can identify is, uh, is rejecting religion, how do they uh, live out life? How do, because we really haven't understood that very much. We've just assumed that people are religious, uh, who are religious, they have certain things that are fairly, uh, that we can predict fairly well. But we haven't been able to get a good reading of how other people are, uh, who are not into religion, and again, in those two other categories, uh, how, in fact, uh, they are living out life. A friend of mine who's in California has just written a book, for example, on, on the, uh, the religion of uh, sort of, I think he dubs them secular humanists. But when he say the religion, really, he's really interested in the lifestyles. If, in fact, they're not into religion, how does that affect the way that they raise their kids? How does that affect uh, the way that they approach something like suffering and uh, the reality of death? And so to try to try to get a, a handle on some of those things outside of just looking at the correlates of people who are religious. So it's my long-winded long way of saying that we recognize that there are at least these three major orientations in Canada that, that exist. What we want to do a better job of in this new edition of Beyond the Gods and Back is, is getting a sense of the correlates for all three of those categories. And uh, so in the course of that, Bev, we, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we're going to be able to address some of the, some of the issues that you're alluding to. But happy to pick that up maybe one-on-one after, uh, after the sessions today so we can clarify things a bit better. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming today, Reg. We've waited a long time for you, the parents here. Uh, my question relates to... Uh, the growing inequality that we have, not only in Canada, but uh, many other places in the world. Is any uh, trend that uh, poor people are more likely to be religious, uh, hook on to a, to a religion, or have you done any studies on that part at all? Can you just elaborate a little bit more? So inequality as it relates to... So uh, is... is uh, what we may call the the lower 
income people, are they more likely to, to, um, to be attend churches and stuff like that? Yeah. <coughs> uh, if you're rich, don't bother with the religion. Mm-hmm. But if you're poor, it may, may help you out. Oh, okay. Um, you know, again, we, we've got a lot of data to look at, look at at least some of those issues relating to, again, correlates and look at the difference. I mean, for example, are people who are uh, in Canada who would be people who have relatively high incomes, are they, do they tend to be religious, people who are not, you know, or people at the other end? Uh, what we find in our typical profiles of religious groups is they're all, they're all over the map with some, you know, with some exceptions. I mean, the stereotype would be that Pentecostals in the past used to draw very heavily from uh, lower, um, or let's say from low, if not lower class, lower middle class people, lower income uh, levels. Uh, probably, well, not probably, it isn't the case today. It seems to be pretty, pretty much people who are, who are, regardless of income, embracing religion in pretty much in, in all categories. Catholics would be a good example in Canada where there's a tremendous range of, uh, of, of incomes among people who are actively involved as Catholics, and uh, particularly with immigration. And Susan, you know some of that data better than I do, but particularly with immigration, and, and in some instances, instances lower incomes, particularly when we get into things like temporary workers, uh, nonetheless, these people are actively involved in terms of their religion. If you're starting to get at the idea that people might be drawn to religion sort of out of economic deprivation, People who are low income would be more inclined to be religious. Uh, th- that doesn't hold up very well, uh, they, simply because of the fact that uh, so many people in so many categories, nonetheless, do embrace religion or conversely reject religion. So it's not a very not a, a straightforward kind of tie that we've been at least finding. Douglas Mitchell, thanks, Reg, for updating some of our information. As you may recognize my accent, I'm a continuing, long-time, lifelong Presbyterian. And uh, what I really want to ask you about, and we're one of the religions that are low on the totem pole in terms of numbers, I was disappointed that you didn't mention ecumenism and the possibility of some amalgamation occurring. We know that people shop around for churches sometimes. But I wonder if you could comment on that about movement between uh, denominations and the possibility of somehow coming more together than we are right now. That's an interesting question. It's the kind of thing I wish we could just uh, job out informally over coffee because I'd be interested in the take of a number of people here, particularly out of the mainline uh, Protestant world. Uh, my, my, My sense these days is that but even, even devout evangelicals are certainly into the idea of dialogue, into the idea in a pluralistic Canada that, that minimum groups need to be polite toward each other, that uh, we should be talking to each other and, in theory, uh, being willing to work together. I don't think there's, uh, you know, the old days when you could, you could have a sharp line of demarcation between, say, Protestants and Catholics and between um, mainline Protestants and evangelicals. I think so much of that is broken down, and particularly when we're looking at younger people within those categories, uh, I, they, they've just they've uh, they've just been born into a, a Canada where pluralism is our end and all, and so the the idea is that we basically, at minimum, have to be nice to each other and talk to each other. What interests me, if I if I go off on a little tangent, what you're saying is. Uh, mainline Protestants. I'm looking around, and I see people like you know, like Terry and and. Uh, 
interested in the extent to, to which mainline Protestants as, as, a, as a survival strategy increasingly are, are going to have more explicit ties with each other. So what was the United Church of Canada would be uh, some uh, religious grouping that is increasingly going to reach out again to Presbyterians and vice versa, and Anglicans and for that matter Lutherans, uh, with the idea that these shrinking, uh, well-established uh, religious denominations or companies would frankly have a lot closer ties with each other into the future. Um, is that on the drawing board? Is it happening? No? Yeah. Right. Well, it's it's just interesting, as we all know historically, the Presbyterians and Lutherans, the United Church, in part founded uh, founded uh, through having a good segment of uh, of, of Presbyterians. Uh, but but anyway, where the Presbyterians and, and the United Church would seemingly have, you know have had the historical ties and would continue to have them, and they, we all know now the Anglicans and, and Lutherans uh, having in, in, you know increasingly close ties. But from a cold sociological point of view, it would seem to make good sense in terms of just numerical realities, and uh, you know for consolidation to be taking place, for mergers to be taking place. We need a new United Church of Canada that brings all the mainliners together. How about that? Can we pull that off? Uh, Trevor Page. I, I much enjoyed your presentation. I'm so sorry that you flashed your, your charts up there for just a few seconds. I'd like to see them for much longer. I wonder whether you would define or give us your definition of religion in terms of the research that you've just presented? I mean, is it just a, a creator and an afterlife, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and has your research, yes, immigration is going to bolster numbers, no doubt, but are you looking at the different value systems that are brought by immigrants, which differ very, very widely within a religion. And are you at all looking at how that may change the face of Canada in terms of its belief systems and its values? And how would we sort of measure <laughs> whether the values are being changed? Do we start with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Thank you. Oh, yeah, a lot of things there. Uh, sure. Uh, the short answer on religion, if, if, if you were taking a sociology religion class, we would take some time to, to define what we mean by religion. For the purposes of our research, we're assuming that uh, when we ask someone what's your religion, that there's, there, there's, there's a fair amount of, uh, what we say, unanimity. There's a, a high level of consensus with respect to what people have in mind. So if we ask the people in this room what's your religion, you'd probably be able to tell us something. Uh, so know that we can, we can, you know, in an academic sense, we can certainly define religion. But, but when we do our surveys and we say what's your religion, we're assuming that uh, the people have, uh, have a common sense of what we're going to mean by that. Stats Canada does the same thing. But we're not so naive as to say we're going to stop there. For example, Trevor, we asked you what's your religion and you, you give us a response. We then empirically uh, will look at uh, the, the contents of that, what, what, what goes into that. 
we may find, for example, let's pick on the United Church since we've been doing that a lot today. Uh, and we ask you then, uh, okay, you say you're united. Well, the second level that we're interested in is uh, what, what do your beliefs look like if you're united? So if you identify with the United Church of Canada, uh, you know, what, what do you believe? Do you believe in, in a God? Do you believe in life after death? Do you think you've ever experienced the presence of God? So we'll look at all that. And we also try to be reasonably sophisticated in the sense that we understand these days that people are always wanting to talk about people being spiritual but not religious and that. So what we try to do is not pontificate from the coolies of southern Alberta and tell Canadians where they are on that. We, we ask people, uh, to what extent do you see yourself as being spiritual but not religious? Uh, being uh, someone who is uh, spiritual and religious, neither spiritual nor religious. And then we look at, again, a lot of the correlates to that to find out what, what people have in mind. If I say I'm spiritual but not religious, do I believe in God? You know, uh, do I, uh, do I uh, envision having... A, I mean, we were this pointed in our survey two months ago. Do you envision having a... a, a you know, when you die, do you envision a funeral which will be religious in nature, not religious in nature? You know, it's going to be a celebration of life, or what is it going to be? So, we, so we're not we're not trying to tell people in advance what it looks like. We try to ask them, uh, "Are you religious?" And then proceed to, to flush out what the, the components are. Now, you went in a lot of things. I, I want to touch on something that if I could just build on what you said from something that came out here uh, at our table. And that's one of the important questions that a lot of people are raising, and we're certainly raising it in our books, is what are the, what are the so what, uh, you know, want to raise the so what questions as far as implications for personal and social life in Canada. Uh, if, we, if, we're ex if we have an increasingly polarized Canada, what, what will that mean, for example, in terms of social compassion? If people value religion, you know, are, are, they, are they a little more caring than other people, or are they less caring? Uh, what are the implications for civility? Um, and, and on a personal level, are you a happier person uh, because you're, you're religious? Are you not as happy with your marriage if you're not religious? So, so we're, we're, we're definitely are making a central uh, question in the research, uh, a definite goal being that of trying to understand what the correlates are. We don't just stop with... You know, saying this is where Canadians are all in all, you know, these three different places. But but looking at uh, at values, looking at implications. For example, it'd be pointed. Uh, uh, Abdi's not here, is he? I don't think so. Because I was interested in. Oh, I'm sorry, Abdi, I see you back there. One of the important questions that uh, that he's been addressing and and comes out of uh, you know our research as, as well, is with a large number of people coming to Canada who are uh, Muslim. Uh, what are the implications for for quality of life for Muslims and others? And what, in a, in a collective sense, uh, what will be the impact? Can we anticipate will be the even short-term impact in terms of interpersonal life in, in Canada? So we're looking not only at the what question in terms of where people are as far as religion, but really wanting to get into the so what question, the consequences again for personal interpersonal life. Those are taking a, uh, grabbing a couple of these, uh, Trevor. We we'll pick, pick up some uh, some others later. Uh, Gerald Wobick, I enjoyed your speech very much. But you mentioned that um, about Canada. Uh, court, uh, you started off with Canada. The 25% are uh, either atheist, agnostic, or non-religious, and then there's that middle ground. And you said that's worldwide. But did you mean worldwide relating to the Christian religion or all religions? And the reason I ask that is it would have a bearing 
on our immigration, which a large part is non from non-Christian countries with different ideas. Thank you. Talking about, we were talking about the inclination to embrace religion, uh, reject religion, be somewhere in the middle. Now, arguing that that pattern is, is, is global, but uh, regardless of the specific kind of religion that might be involved. So in the tables, for example, in the book, we've got uh, a number of countries, obviously, where the vast majority of people uh, subscribe to Islam. And so we're saying to what extent, you know, are they into Islam uh, in an ardent way? Are they uh, somewhere, by the, some of the, uh, the initial measures, are they somewhere in the middle? Or are they, frankly, uh, not, not inclined to adopt, uh, you know, that faith at all? So we're talking about, with respect to religion, argue that globally in every region of the world, every community in Alberta, you've got these variations. People, to varying degrees, embrace it, reject it in the middle. It's a fairly simple what kind of trichotomy, <laughs> but... But we're saying, uh, I think it accounts for the data. It accounts for the reality globally. Secularization doesn't do that. My name is Barbara Warren. My question to you is about the oblivion to middle. I mean, surely most of those people have had a religion in the past. Are you doing any studies as to why they left religion? A good practical question. Uh, it's interesting in the in the book the first time around. And this is why we keep writing new ones because obviously we realize there are some things we we've overlooked, haven't uh, perhaps read very clearly and described rather you know haven't described uh, particularly well. Um, we we talked in the in the Beyond the Gods book, uh, you know edition one. We talked very much about correlates of people uh, embracing faith and rejecting faith. And I had one reviewer, and at the time it kind of ticked me off. But you go back to the drawing board and say, yeah, maybe in the shower you think, that guy was onto something, you know. But we, we really didn't know much, or you know, we didn't describe much in the first book about, about that ambivalent middle. And we've already, through the Angus Reid survey uh, and the initial uh, 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 report as far as the findings, have tried to flush out what's going on in the middle there. And it's a fascinating category because... Uh, I recognize, and this to me always is the test of research. Uh, I remember uh, some of you who are sociologically minded might remember the name Howard Becker. He said there's something wrong with the research that we do on deviance with the T if they don't recognize themselves in the descriptions we're providing. You know, And, and I find that's a good rule of thumb that there, there's got to be – we should be able to look at that ambivalent middle – and I found that in, when we were doing some of the initial uh, analyses of the middle through the Angus Reid survey, I was thinking, you know, th this sounds like a lot of my relatives, maybe a little bit like me. Uh, uh, because these are the kind of people, for example, um, they're, they're, not, they're not embracing uh, atheism. They say they show up for the occasional service, for example. Uh, they, uh, they like the idea that they're, they're probably having a uh, religious funeral when they die. Uh, they're in a religion a la carte in terms of their beliefs and uh, practices. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're people that come across sort of, sort of nice. And, and, and the interesting thing is they don't have that much in common. They acknowledge that with, with people who are rejecting religion because they're not rejecting it. But they're not so sure they want an awful lot to do with the people who are actively involved. So I recognize all kinds of my relatives in here, you know. And, um, and so I, 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 it's, a, I think, a fascinating category we have found, and I got to the uh, data, uh, we have found that, as I recall, somewhere around 60% of them say they're open to greater involvement if they could find it's worthwhile, if they could find things are really touching their lives. And, and so uh, they're not a hostile group, uh, but they are. They're in the middle, and they're going to show up at Christmas. 
They're going to be there for services, you know, if they're out of a Christian tradition. And, um, you know, so I, I forget. I'm sorry, the specific question you were saying, I think just about it was, do we know much about them? We're going to know a lot more about them when we're, we're already carrying out, as you can gather, a lot of preliminary work with them. My name is Van Christou. Thank you so much, Reg, for being here today and uh, giving us this uh, brilliant and, and concise summary of, 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 of your recent work. Thinking about uh, religious beliefs and that group that you talked about, the big middle group that, that's undecided, and you referred uh, in speaking about that, about the various religions having different having competition amongst themselves in attracting that group particularly. Uh, my mind has to go back to when I was back in university days, we'd have these long sessions, uh, bull sessions, way into the wee hours with the Christian brothers at uh, St. Joseph's College. And one Christian brother told me one time, it's something I've never forgotten, he said, give me any child, any level of intelligence or whatever sex for five years and they'll be devout Catholics for the rest of their life. And I think that's very true. However, what, what uh, my question is around, uh, have, you, have your studies touched on the various methods that the church has used to attract the people within this middle group? Uh, it seems to me that uh, there's a lot of psychology, uh, the way that corporations... Uh, arrange their, their wares in, in Safeways or in, 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 in the dollar store or, or, or Walmart, um, that the, the uh, churches are in that same kind of business when they're in competition for these souls. Uh, have your studies touched at all on what methods are most effective in attracting them? Well, some good questions. I, I want to pick up just initially on, on the, that first uh, observation about uh, Catholics, and if they've been exposed uh, for a period of time, particularly when they're young, you know, that, that kind of truism, that, that axiomatic notion, uh, they'll be Catholics for life. Uh, what our research has been showing for years is that, again, empirically, uh, that's a very accurate statement. There's something that Catholics do, uh, and a lot of Protestants haven't figured it out, uh, that, that results in, in Catholics being convinced that, uh, that they're Catholics. Let me give you some more, uh, one marvelous uh, a bit of illustrative data. In Quebec, in response to a question we had in a national survey about five, ten years ago, when we're in the context of asking people about uh, their religious traditions, we asked the question, would you be open to the idea of switching to another religious tradition? Now, in Quebec, among people attending monthly or more, 98% of the Catholics said no. Now, that doesn't surprise anyone, right? 98% active Catholics in Quebec say not open to switch to another tradition. Among Catholics in Quebec attending less than once a month, down to never, you know what the figure was in terms of no? 97%. It's like, uh, you know, once they're a Catholic, they're a Catholic. And evangelicals over the years, particularly have, uh, evangelicals, have gone into Quebec treating it as a mission field thinking that they, because people aren't actively involved in the churches, uh, you know, they're, they're just ripe, you know, for, you know, for the pickings. They, they just have to go in there and they can evangelize in their mind. And they, and they and invariably the pattern is just failure. They just, they just can't, you know, they, they can't get through to Catholics. So 
The Catholics are doing something. Uh, Catholics will say a thing that at least Protestants I grew up with would never say, and that's, I think I need to go to church next Sunday. Protestants would never say that. You know? I think I need to go to church next Sunday. But the Catholics would say that because of that magic moment. I don't mean it with any sacrilege here, but that magic moment, and I've watched it here locally, where people will come in, they look like they come straight from a party, and they're sitting bored through the service, but they're there for that time when they can go forward and they can share in the Eucharist. Do they stay for the final hymn? Oh, no, they're way heckin' gone by then. But, but there's a sense that I'm a Catholic, and there are certain things that I need to do, and, and you know, and we're going to, we're working with that. We planted some stuff in the new survey to try to get a better handle on some of that sense of guilt that Catholics seem to have. Protestants don't know what guilt is, you know, they don't, and, uh, but a whole different, different orientation. Uh, <clears throat> Terry Shellington. Thank you, Reg. Thanks for uh, all your information and uh, humor. Uh, <clears throat> I remember reading a book two or three decades ago entitled Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. And uh, the thesis essentially was that the more religious groups wall themselves off from the secular movement and uh, insulate themselves and the sharper the division uh, from them in the world, the more they're inclined to grow and the more liberal they are and the looser the walls, uh, uh, the more they decline. Um, Any comments on that thesis? It's an interesting thesis. I'm very familiar with it. Dean Kelly had written the book. And it was interesting. Some of you might find this this bit of info to be uh, of some value. This person who wrote the book, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing, was a mainline Protestant in the U.S. And he felt that uh, the mainliners could learn something from the the conservatives as to, uh, you know, how they might grow. And uh, part of it was that strict uh, notion of, you know. But I also remember Kelly, he talked about strictness. The strict churches were growing. Uh, but, but he also talked about the idea of being able to address ultimate questions. And I think the, the one thing that, that the, uh, where the conservatives have had a jump, and I say this sociologically, not theologically, is that all of us are having to deal with the reality of death. Not a lot of just our own lives, but uh, people who are dying all around us and everything else. And here's the harsh thing. Uh, when you look at mainliners and say in the last 20, 30 years, if you went to a mainline church and you just lost a family member, uh, and you wondered if you'd ever see them again. Well, the mainliners have much to say about that. You know? Going to see them again? I've spent a lot of time, for example, in mainline circles over the years, and I've thrown that at clergy. Do you have anything to say in terms of a firm answer to what's going to happen when people die? Uh, we need to counsel them. We need to do this. No, 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 no. They, they want to know. Am I going to see my mother again? Am I going to see my brother again? The Pentecostal person has an answer, answer to that. You know, it's a market entry. Well, if you know the Lord and she knew the Lord, then you're going to see them one day on the other side of glory. <sighs> and you who are United Mainline and many of us would say, oh, you know, come on, how can you be so dogmatic? But coldly, that's a market entry. You know, they got something to say. And... I think that one of the fascinating things, and we, and we genuinely are trying to flush this out. We've got a lot of death-related stuff in the survey, uh, the latest survey. That, that one of the fascinating things is that it seems to me that as long as people are, and we know they're going to always be having to deal with the question of death, 
As long as that's the case, religion is guaranteed a place in every setting in the world. I mean, because people want to know what's going to happen. And I think, going back again to Kelly's book, the conservatives had something to say, had and still continue to have something to say to those big ultimate questions. And the mainliners may feel with integrity uh, they, they can't be that dogmatic and decisive. And we simply would say sociologically, then tough luck. You're not going to have a crack at that market. Uh, Roman Catholics, they're kind of in an interesting zone because they sort of have things to say, but they're not too dogmatic. You know that band, don't you? I mean, they at least can address questions about life after death. But they're, they're kind of polite about it. They're not talking streets of gold and, and mansions over hilltops and things like that. But you get the feeling that Catholics really believe there's something out there, right? It's um, just about time to thank Reg, but in doing so, we've learned other things. One <laughs> is that he can regard religion as an industry. And the second thing, and here we don't know what to do with this language, he believes in epiphanies. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Reg. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>